Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that we have been blood-bought by our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we have the privilege of spending eternity with him, which is forever and ever. What, a, what an awesome, awesome concept. What an awesome truth that is. And you're going to make that reality. Well, actually, God, we are living that reality. We are living eternal life today, right now. You've got something even more special for us later. And we look forward to that. Today, God, as we look at this idea of Christian disciplines and what do we do in occupying our time and what do we do to, uh, to feed our spirits so that we, as followers, as disciples of Jesus, can run after you and pursue the things of God. I'm asking you, Lord, as we look at these things concerning the word and worship, would your spirit speak deep, deep truth to us, God? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here is a reality check. Um, as we talk about the word and worship, last week we talked about prayer and fasting. These are things within the sphere of Christian disciplines that can be very difficult. Uh, because they're difficult, however, does not mean, uh, by being difficult, meaning, well, if I don't do them, I feel guilty, therefore I won't do them. That's how many Christians approach Christian life. You know, I, I just fail too many times, so I'm just not going to do it at all. Um, I can't get up, and so do you do it this way, where, you know, if you don't get up on time to go to work and you're late regularly, you just stop going to work? Hello to Friday when you don't get a paycheck then. Um, but the truth is, even if we fail, we seek after God because th there's two things that I want to mention. When we're talking about a quiet time and we're talking about just developing that discipline that communes with God, I am not saying that doing this will affect your standing with Christ. It's not going to earn you salvation, that salvation by good works, and it is not going to change God's mind about you. You are not going to earn God's love anymore. But we also don't want to say that to have a regular discipline in the word, prayer and worship, is somehow legalistic. Because I'm not saying, I'm telling you right now, it is not. And because it's legalistic, therefore, I don't feel obligated to do it. Well, here's my question to you. How many of you are married in here? Raise your hand. Okay, Zach, if I were to say to you, um, so Zach, uh, do you spend any time with your wife? What if, and I know that he spends a lot of time with Kate, what if Zach were to say, well, you know, well, come to I guess I don't. And I said, well, do you love Kate? Oh, man, I love her so much. I would say to you, Zach, do you see an inconsistency here? You say you love her, but you never spend time with her. And, and so I'm just going to throw this out to us. Guys, you know, if we love our wives, we're going to spend time with you. Ladies, if you love your husbands, you're going to spend time with them. If you love Jesus, guess what you're going to do? Yes, you will. You're going to spend time with them. But what happens if you just don't spend time with them? I do for two hours Sunday morning. Man, that's like two out of my entire week. It's the first day of the week. When I get up in the morning, I run to church as fast as I can, and I spend that two hours, and that's a huge sacrifice. Well, I'm glad that it's a sacrifice for you. God loves sacrifice, and I'm glad that you come and you join him. But I remember Keith Green. Keith Green had an edge to him, and, and, I, I, and I don't hold firmly to this, but it is humorous. And he says in one of his songs about no compromise, he says, you come to me Sundays and Wednesday nights, um, 
but if you don't come to me every day, why do you even come at all? I'm not saying that you've you got to come to him every day, and if you don't, then stop coming to church. I'm not saying that. But his point is simply this. You know, sometimes we like to do the simple Christian duties and, and just show up, and, you know, I've done my Christian duties, so I'm good. But, man, if, you, if we love the Lord, and we truly love the Lord, aren't we going to want to spend time in his word? And so I'm just going to simply put it this way. And I'm not going to judge anyone by saying this, but I am going to ask you to weigh this question. If you tell me that you truly love Jesus, then why are you not seeking him? I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip right now. I'm just simply, maybe the real issue is this lack of love, this lack of devotion to Jesus, okay? Maybe that's what we're really getting at here tonight when we talk about the word and worship. This is our love relationship with Jesus Christ and when we engage in it and sometimes yes I would say it's duty but then let's seek to move past the duty because this is spending time with you I mean how many of you guys when you leave the the home you and you kiss your wife you just simply do it out of duty Uh, you know we can do that I guess but man when I kiss my wife it's because I love her okay and I want it's like it's a reminder I'm going to spend the rest of my day apart from you, sweetie, but I want you to know I love you and my heart is right here. So I'm leaving, but this is where I really am. That's what I'm trying to communicate when I kiss my wife. And so we can do that with with Jesus. Jesus, you know what? I want you to know I've got to go now, but my heart is really right here in your presence. So, you know, it would be really cool, Jesus. How about if you just go with me and we'll just kind of talk all day? That would be awesome. Let's do that. But that's what we talked about last week, prayer. But this is, this is spending time with Jesus. This is devotion to Jesus. So as we look at Psalm 1, he used... Kate, comment, question? Yes. I wanted to just say, as someone who does have a more driven, orderly, disciplined life, I think that this is a really good way to grumpy craving too. I need it now. Okay, Cole? My grandson, Christopher, literally has no appetite. Um, they have to give him drugs that'll make him have an appetite. And as a result, he hasn't been putting on weight. So okay. that's kind of an illustration right there. Okay. 
the idea is, I'm, I'm sorry. My drug is caffeine. Oh, that gets me. we'll pray for you then, John, huh? Okay. <laughs> oh, it gets you to eat. You know, I was following the analogy. <laughs> I appreciate that. There we go. But I like that analogy, craving pure spiritual milk of the word. And I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on anyone tonight, but I am going to say this, that if we are not craving after the word, there is something wrong. There is something wrong. I'm not going to say you don't love the Lord, but God wants to stir something in your heart that ignites this desire to spend time with him. We're going to get into this concept, if we have time, of abiding, which is really crucial in this. <clears throat> and it's going, to, it's going to play out a little bit more of what Kate was touching on. But here in Psalm 1, <clears throat> and I'm just going to assume all of you guys have read all of these scripture passages, especially when we get to worship. Man, there's so much in worship. Man, we got two sermons here. We got a couple of sermons actually for each one, but we're, we're, we're going to cut to the chase with each of them. But if, if I don't do anything else, I want to leave this a hunger, an insatiable appetite in our mouths for the Word of God and for worship and communion with Him. And it, it, if we don't dig into the theology of, of all of this, then I'm okay with that hunger for Him, church. Fall deeper in love with Him. Let God stir something just uh, ferocious within you, this ferocious appetite. When I was a kid, I would sit down and I would devour plates of food and my mom would look at me like this, how are you so skinny? She would say, Michael, if you don't eat, drink your milk, you're going to dry up and blow away. And she was from the South, and so she talked like that. And I, and I had this picture of being blown away. And so I drank my milk every day. And, but I could eat plates of food in that game. I had such a high metabolism. I want us to devour and just love the Word of God that much. That when we sit down to a plate of spiritual food, we just want to devour it. So, let's do that. The, the man who is blessed by the Lord and doesn't cater to the, the philosophies and the vain beliefs and the negativity and the gossips of the world, it says in verse 2 that his, his what? His what of the law? That he does what? He delights in the law. That's the verb there. He delights in the law. If David wrote this psalm, then what was the law to him? Leviticus. Yep. Woohoo! Yeah! Dig yep. into that book! Awesome. Stop falling asleep at midnight trying to read through that book. <laughs> Truly, there is so much in the book of Leviticus. There really is. There's a lot of foreshadowing of the Christian life in the book of Leviticus. Um, <clears throat> but it, it's Leviticus. It, it's it's the law of Moses. Sometimes the the Bible's divided up into the law and the prophets. So if that's what he's talking about, it's maybe more than just what Moses wrote. But the bottom line is, <clears throat> it is it is at heart the law. It's even the ceremonial law. It's the moral law. It's the judicial law. It's the stories of Genesis that give us principles how to follow Christ. This is what. Uh, when it says the law, not just the word of God, but the law, 
that the godly man, the blessed man, delights in. He delights in it. And as a result, he, he meditates on it day and night. Now that concept of day and night, I'm not saying, well, if you really love Jesus, then you're going to get into the Word. But if you really, really love Jesus, you're going to have two quiet times a day, morning and evening. When I was a young man, that is what I did, and I, I didn't really get the grasp of this, so I had two quiet times every day, and I just thought, man, I'm such a mature man of God. Then I got married and realized just how immature I really was. But the truth is, I, he's not saying that you have to spend time in the morning and then in the evening, and then you'll be blessed, okay? This idea of morning and evening is just this idea of, like when Paul says, pray continuously or pray regularly. Let this be a regular habit. Let it be something you look forward to. Let it be something that you partake of on a regular basis. Why? Because you delight in it. You know, it, it, some of us, and I'll be honest, I enjoy this too. I when I am when I am working hard, and I come home, I want to spend time with my family. And if we have an opportunity for an action flick, I would love to watch an action flick. That is, I like that. That's really relaxing for me. And with clear play, I can delight in that, okay? Hanging around when I first get home, eating my meal, listening to my children, children crack jokes and uh, have fun. And I'm probably too dead to the world to say anything, but I'm listening to this and I am laughing inside. But then I, I really enjoy you know, just sitting down and as a family watching something that's adventurous, okay? And, and I delight in that. And, and he's just simply saying here, this is, this is something that we look forward to. This is something that we delight in. And we meditate on it, which means we think about it. We don't just read it. We meditate. We pause. What are the implications of this? We ask questions of the text because we want to understand it. Then we want to interpret it right, and then we're going to say, okay, God, let me ask the so what question. So what? What does it mean for me today? You've got it in your word for a really good reason. Help me find that today. Okay? And so he meditates on it. So what's the result? What's, what's the end result of all of this? He's going to be like this tree planted by streams of water, which means he's going to receive constant nourishment, even though everything around him is a drought. As long as that stream doesn't dry up, he's have con he has constant nourishment. Constant nourishment. And he will not dry up. His leaf will not wither. He's like an evergreen. His leaf isn't going to die off when the drought hits um, because his roots go deep and they go into the stream and he is constantly nourished. And so hard things can happen in our life. But because we're drawing daily sustenance from this word and the, the circumstances and the world out there curses God and says, you should curse God and die, which is what Job's wife told him to do. That's what the world says. The world says God's not trustworthy. The world says God really isn't in control. The world says if God is all loving and all powerful, then bad things wouldn't happen. So therefore, there's not a God. Or if there is a God, he's too weak to take care of your problems. And my Bible tells me the complete opposite. And I need to immerse myself every day in God's truth, not the supposed truth out there in the world, which is no truth at all. That's why Pilate had to ask this so simple question to Jesus, what is truth? Well, if you got the wrong starting point, Pilate, you're going to end up in the wrong place. So really good question. What is truth anyway? Because all the world has to offer is contradictory. 
God's truth is not. So he's going to be like that tree planted by streams of water. His, his leaf isn't going to wither. Whatever he, the, the, the fruit that he produces is going to be in season and regular, and whatever he does prospers. This is the same charge that God, through, uh, God spoke to Joshua. He said, meditate on my word. Let it always be on your lips. Think about it. Meditate. And if you do that, Joshua, whatever you do, you're going to be successful in. And I do believe that there is a spiritual dynamic that is beyond our understanding, that when we are in the word, there is a blessing that follows. But he is also talking about the very practical. If you know the word of God, you're going to know how to obey God, and you're going to know how to follow him, and you're going to line yourself up for his blessing. Okay? You're not going to strive with selfish ambition for that promotion at work because God says, that's not my heart. There's times in which you sacrifice your reputation. There's times in which you, you lay your ambitions aside. But if you're filled with selfish ambition and you want to climb over other people to get to the top, you might get to the top, but you're not going to be truly blessed. And here's what I have found, that those who are filled with selfish ambition many times do not make it to the top because others recognize it. They don't want to follow that kind of leader. They don't want to entrust themselves to that type of leader. You want to know how to be the best leader possible and best successful businessman possible? Follow this book right here. Mm -hmm. There you go. That's why whatever you do shall prosper. Um, it's a light unto our path. <clears throat> it guides us and leads us. If we hide God's word in our heart, Psalm 11 says, we will not sin and again, there is a spiritual dynamic that the more that we hide God's word in our heart, it, there, there is a spiritual power and encouragement and it lifts us up and it helps us hate what's evil and cling to what is good. But on the, the, the other side, that's, less, that's a little bit more objective, I guess I could say, as you hide the word in your heart, you're going to know what's sin. You're going to know what's righteousness. And you, you, you're just going to know it. I've had people tell me, you know, ask me, you know, there's this really pretty girl. She seems really nice. I think I'm going to marry her. What do you think? I'm going to tell you, I don't have nearly enough information. First of all, is she a Christian? Well, no, she's not. I already have an answer for you. And some people just refuse to be led by the word of God. And so when we're led by the word, then, of course, we're not going to be led into sin. So it's that simple. Um Let's turn to John chapter 5, very powerful passage here, um, and it talks about this concept of abiding. Um, Jesus is talking with the Jews, um, it goes all the way back to verse, 15, uh, verse 16, these are a group of rabble-rousing Jews that just want to call Jesus into question. You're breaking the Sabbath by healing. You're, you're making yourself equal with God. You're blaspheming, blah, blah, blah. So I just need you to know Jesus is really firm with them here for that reason, okay? They are not being teachable. And you have to ask the question, what is wrong with their heart? By the time you reach this passage, look at all the red verses that precede that Jesus has shared with them. That's Jesus speaking to them. And now he finally gets to this, and he does not pull any punches. He just says it. Verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You 
have never heard his voice nor seen his form. Now, he may be talking about literally, you've never literally heard his voice or seen his form. But if you look at me, I'm the exact representation of him, and I'm speaking the words of the Father to you. That's his implication here. But he goes on and he says, nor does his word... Now, the NIV uses the term dwell. I I prefer not to use that word, only because I I don't think it really gets at the heart of it. The uh, King James uses the word abide, and if we understand that word better, I think that we can um, we can get at its meaning. At least dwell is a little bit closer. So many times this word meno in the Greek is translated remain, which is fair enough, but it certainly does not mean that you know his word is just going to remain in us. It's like it's going to survive and hang on. It means a lot more than that. So I'm going to go with this word abide. Um, nor does his word abide in you. For you do not believe the one he sent, which is Jesus. Then he says this, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So the word of God does not abide in them, but they have studied the word. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? You've studied the scriptures, you you know the superficial facts, you know the easily gleaned facts, you know don't commit adultery, but what you're missing is you lust in your heart after women. You don't murder, kudos to you, but you hate one another. You know, and, and so he's he's kind of throwing you you don't abide in the word. You study the scriptures and you know so much, but you you've missed the entire point. And you're hoping that through the scriptures you'll find eternal life. But guess what? I am the life and you've missed me. And so you don't have life. This is what Jesus is saying. So what he's doing is he is contrasting a knowledge of the word with abiding in the word. And if we're not careful, we can confuse these. We can think that by studying the scriptures, we will become good disciples of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't study the word. Of course not. We should study the word, but knowledge is not our goal. Knowledge is a stepping stone to the goal. Our goal is to abide in the word and plumb its riches and allow it to affect us. And you've heard me say this expression so many times. The, the, The word of God is not just for information, it's for transformation. That's the goal. Jesus, I'm reading your word today and I need it to change me. I don't want to just become an awesome theological professor one day. Because that's what these people were. Some of these were Pharisees and they knew the word. But the word of God didn't dwell in them. It didn't abide in them. It didn't saturate their every thought. It didn't percolate down in their spirit so that it affected the way they believed and it humbled their heart. Because if it truly did, they would look at Isaiah 53, they would look at Isaiah 61, and they would say, Jesus truly is the Messiah. But they just knew the superficial facts and they missed it. They missed it. So we need to abide in the word so that it lives in us and it lives through us because it's transforming us. It's like that word. It's like the water that, that dwells in. Uh, that, that, uh, um, let me just share an illustration with you. Um, 
You may have heard this before. John, question, comment? Comment. Okay. Uh, when you were saying what you just said, this okay. came to my head. It said, uh, Go for it. Uh, follow, follow, follow. You said, uh, you don't murder, but you hate, right? Okay. It, was, it was like they were finding loopholes right. when they were actually falling in holes. Okay. Good. All right, good, good. Okay. A little truth there. <laughs> Finding loopholes, and they were really falling into holes. Good. All right, write that down somewhere. I've got it on record here, so. All right, that's right. But a friend of mine out in um, Glendale, uh, yeah, Glendale, Arizona, he had an acre lot. He had a horse on it. He had some animals. A large, large backyard. And... They lived in Phoenix, Glendale is Phoenix, basically a suburb of Phoenix, Arizona. And, you know, you'd be hitting 115, 120 degree weather in the summer, very dry. And they don't have a sprinkler, at least his place did not have a sprinkler system like ours. They get, you know, an inch or two deep of water. Um, but they would irrigate, which means they would get four inches or more of water, and it would just flood his backyard. So he had to have the edges of his yard raised up six inches all the way around where his fence was, and then it would there was always, it was it was like a gully, okay. And he, once a week, it was his turn on a Monday, and it would, he would flood his backyard. And I looked at that and I said, really. I, I, I'm not understanding this. Why do you do this? What happens come Thursday? You know, three or four days later, your lawn is going to be dried up. Doesn't don't you need it to water it regularly? And he said, Mike, I want you to think about it this way. That four inches of water will percolate twelve inches into the ground, and by the time Thursday comes around, by the time Sunday comes around, the day before I irrigate, only if the top few inches, four to six inches, will be dry, but the last six inches will not be. Guess where the roots of the grass, my grass, have already grown? Wherever the water is. The roots in my, of the grass in my backyard are 12 inches long. If you sprinkle water, and it goes only two or three inches deep, guess how deep the roots of your grass are going to go? Two or three inches. So you see, when, when we saturate ourselves with God's word and just let it percolate down into our spirit and meditate, ruminate on the word of God, it goes so deep that when we enter into these trials, people, we are literally rooted in God's word and unmoved and it doesn't shake us and we stand the storms because we have abided in God's word. We've allowed it to percolate and we have remained in it and we have thought about it and it has challenged us and it has transformed us and this is where we want to be. Always. Okay? Let the word of God percolate down in your spirit so that's how deep your roots will go. Okay? And I hope that analogy really helps us sink our teeth into this. You know, there are, there's so much that we can get into. Um, James that says, you know, when you read the word of God and it challenges you to change and you don't, it's like a man who's totally disheveled and he's just had a long, hard day working in the gutter. And I, I saw a guy the other day, you know, he was working on our sewer system. And I've heard of guys working on sewer systems and man, that is not a job I would want. And it can get all over you. 
and this guy can look himself in the mirror and see all of, you know what I'm talking about, all over him, and walk away and not do anything about it. Really? You're not going to take a shower? Come on, let me introduce you to this awesome process that we call a shower. It's awesome. And it's like me now saying to the man who looks into the Word and does nothing about it. There's this process of the Spirit that if you allow Him to, He will change your life. So don't just hear the Word, but do the Word. We don't want to be just be hearers. We want to be doers of the Word. And that's James's point here. Um... Okay, yeah, so I've touched on just a very small percentage of what I wanted to, but just take that stuff and take that stuff and just let it sink into our because I do want to move on to worship and take about 15 minutes on this. Um, let me ask you a question. Should culture dictate how we worship the Lord? No. no. Explain. Stephen? I mean, well, okay, so I'm looking like more like microcultures of churches. So like I grew up in a very traditional church. Okay. And then when I did get saved, like even the like administrators in my school, they're like, what are you doing? Like I was like, I'm worshiping God. But like, uh, you know, and I guess it can be looked at as in America, in America as well, like as a whole how we worship God versus how maybe someone in India or China might worship God. Um, and we do let our culture affect. Okay. Like type of music or how we worship? Okay. That is the question then. Because my question is, should we allow culture to dictate how we worship the Lord? No. Not like the style of music because the style of music changes and yes, that is cultural, and that's fine. I believe music is the language of our culture. Um, so, okay, that's going to change. But how we worship the Lord. And so you guys said no, and I want you, anybody else, why shouldn't culture dictate how we worship the Lord? Stephen? Well, uh, my personal view is that there's a lot, a lot of people out there that, don't follow God, period. So why should their culture, their belief, dictate how I worship God? I shouldn't allow God to move in me and let Him guide me and not worship Him. Okay, all right, fair, fair enough. But let's take this a little bit further. Um, I grew up in a very traditional church. We sang three hymns. We sang one in the beginning. Then we sat down and did something, read a little scripture. Then we stood up and we sang another hymn. Then we sat down and someone gave a special offering. We would then stand up and sing another hymn and then sit down and the pastor would preach a sermon. And at the very end, uh, if, if it was a really good worship service, we'd have four, not just three hymns. And at the end, if it was a powerful sermon, the pastor would have a stand up and we would sing one more hymn. Uh, maybe just a verse or a chorus or maybe the whole thing and then we were done and dismissed in an hour and so or an hour and a half and if someone were to come to me and say wow you know what the bible talks about lifting of hands and i would say well you know what i don't feel really comfortable with that because i didn't grow up with that and if i lift my hands i feel uncomfortable doing that so i don't lift my hands to worship the lord and there are many people in churches today, they don't feel comfortable doing certain things, so they don't do them. And my question is, 
where where did you acquire this taste for a certain style of worship so that you it makes you now feel uncomfortable lifting your hands? That is a church culture. So I'm going to say this because I agree with you. Culture should not dictate how how we worship the Lord. Neither should church culture dictate how we worship the Lord. As we look through these passages of Scripture, share with the group ways in which we are not just suggested to worship the Lord, but if we look at the Hebrew, we are actually commanded to worship the Lord. And I'm going to come back to that idea of a command. Okay, But how are we supposed to worship the Lord? Just give, give us some ways. Give us the scripture passage and then how we are to worship the Lord. Okay, dancing. Where do you find that? Isn't that of the world, Stephen? Come on. No. Show me from scripture. Dancing is of the Lord. Come on. David danced before the Lord. Yes, he did. Second Samuel chapter 6. Okay. Man. All right, any other passages, or are we just talking one simple passage in the Bible? 149 talks about dancing before the Lord, okay? Do you realize that when you look at Luke 15, in Luke 15, this is an awesome concept, when the lost son came to the father and he was forgiven, what is that a picture of? The sinner repenting and coming to Christ. Jesus' Jesus' point was when a lost sinner comes to Christ, what do the angels do? They rejoice. But in the story, what do they do? When they kill the fatted calf and put a ring on him and a robe on him, then what does everybody do? They have a huge party. And what do they do at the party? They dance. They they boogie in a very spiritual way, okay? I don't know. They they dance, they dance. That is the idea of celebration. When a lost sinner comes to Christ, the angels dance before the Lord. They celebrate his abundant goodness, Psalm 145. And and we see dancing throughout the scripture. It's just that the world has introduced a very erotic type of dancing, or even dancing that probably for a, a couple that's not married um, could stir up feelings and may not be the best to do. Very close and intimate and so on. But just because the world has done something out there doesn't mean that suddenly dancing is of the devil. Okay? We see it in scripture. We see it in the New Testament. Okay? Other, other ways that we are to worship the Lord. Shout for joy. Oh, man. That just seems so disorderly, Marla. I mean, here I am. I'm trying to have a quiet, intimate time of worship and someone's shouting to the Lord. Really? That just seems so disorderly. I didn't grow up with that. And it makes me, it, it really quenches the spirit. I'm sorry. I'm being facetious here. And I, I probably should not be. Because what I'm saying right now runs contrary to most, most churches in America And I believe God wants to wake American churches up and say, you know what? I didn't ask for you to worship me in a comfortable way or even the way that you like or even prefer. I have told you how to worship me, and yet the church in America refuses. I'm not saying the whole church, but many churches in America refuse to follow God's way of worshiping him. 
Now I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm to come back to this question of as far as why does God want us to worship this way in a minute. But what are some other ways that we are to worship the Lord? Okay, Stephen. Uh, Leanne? Clapping. Clapping of our hands, okay? Many times it, the concept of clapping of hands is introduced into worship services, and I do this too. We clap to the music, and we're keeping in rhythm, okay? The drummer sets the beat. Okay, and it is our intention anyway to stay with him with in, in that beat. But when it talks about clapping to the Lord, my study has not led me to the conclusion that clapping to the Lord is to keep up with the drummer. All right, why do we clap to the Lord? Is it because God, you have so entertained me? I just love it. I'm laughing, and I just, awesome job, God. You were such the you're such the entertainer. Do we clap because God has entertained us? Why do we clap? Because he's good. He is? Okay, so how does clapping... How does Why clap because he's good? Because he's good to us. Okay. There you go. And so you've probably done your homework, at least most of you, and you've read Second Kings 11 and 12, and the king is, uh, Josiah is being set in, coronated as king, and everyone stands and, and they say, what is it, long live the king, or God bless the king, and they all do what? Clap. Clap. Because he told a funny joke, he just did a juggling routine, he just entertained them. No, no, because they are honoring him. That is what they stand Standing is found in the scriptures. I don't think I had a passage for standing here, but that's standing is a way to worship the Lord. And, it, and, and we don't stand so that we don't fall asleep. That's not why we're standing. We stand to honor the king. When a judge comes into the place, what do all do? All rise. All rise. Why? To honor him. This, this is transcultural. We stand in the presence of the aged. Why? To honor, to honor them. Okay, so w- when we worship, one of the commands is standing before the Lord. We clap. That is another way to honor him. Why do we shout? Are we afraid that he is sleeping? We want to wake him up. Are we afraid that he doesn't hear us? Why do we shout to the Lord? We shout in triumph. Okay. Triumph about what? Because you just won the the, 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 the the derby the other day. You won the lottery last week. Why do we shout? What, why, why? God has won the victory. And we're excited about this. It's part of what you say. Rejoicing. Rejoicing. Yes, it is. Come on. When your team makes a, a touchdown, shh, that's so loud. We want to be respectful to our football team. And give them a golf clap, you're going to embarrass them. You shout. Yes! This is why in, in Revelation 19, three times in verses 1, and by the way, I don't know if I got these verses right, but in Revelation 19, 1, 3, and 6, three times it says, And shouting, they said, all together, hallelujah. Uh, and, and it's like this shout of victory about what God has done to triumph. So, yes, it's not only in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, and you're going to do it in heaven, let's get comfortable with it then, right right now, even if it's not uh, cultural to do it, it's dictated to us from the scriptures. This is how he wants to be worshipped. Shout to the Lord. If you don't get it now, you're going to get it then, because we are all going to do that. We will be shouting to the Lord. So, get used to it. But many people don't feel comfortable with it, so they don't do it. 
And here's what I'm going to say. And I'm just going to challenge this mindset because for, for, for many, many years, we can be entrenched with a traditional way of worshiping the Lord that's not biblical or at least not entirely biblical. And as a result, when it comes to shouting, we can feel uncomfortable. And our discomfort dictates how we worship God, even when his word has told us how to. This is, a, this is where our dictate comes from. Not how comfortable I feel. Not with my upbringing. If my upbringing was great, awesome. But if it, if it didn't follow what God's word says, guess what needs to change? Me. So what are some other ways in which I'm going to try and go through this a little quicker? What are some other ways, Stephen? Other ways to worship God. Okay. Um, it, it does say in several places... Uh, Several instruments like the tambourine, instruments. the trumpet, the okay. drum. Yeah, please. All right. <laughs> please. All right. It's very nice if we can play those instruments skillfully. Yes, it is. <laughs> the song says, please. It, it does. It does. Play, play with harp. skilled hands. Yeah, skilled hands. David was very skilled on the harp. Okay. Did you have a, another yeah, one? Yeah. The one that I wasn't expecting, and it's not outward. Um, in either Psalm 30 or Ephesians 5, it says, those, those two you had together, make melody with your heart to the Lord. Okay. So we sing. We, it, and, and we also, listen, this is just an awesome concept that I am still pondering in my heart, the, the full implications of it, but we speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Yeah. Our worship is to impact the people around us, mm-hmm. not just God. Also, twirling strobe lights. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. Oh, weird. I missed that first. Thank you, John. I appreciate that deep spiritual insight. <laughs> Wonderful. So, lifting of hands, kneeling, bowing. Proskuneo means to bow or kneel down or lay prostrate before. Some, some people, when they worship, they just lay sprawled out uh, on the floor before God. Okay? This is this concept of proskuneo. It's the Greek word used in the New Testament. Uh, yeah, I think you actually see it right there in the next page. Latru and proskuneo. We've talked about those two words before. Probably won't be able to get into them today. But th- then what we're challenged with is... If we don't worship the Lord this way and the Old Testament commands it, then why don't we? Here are some of the reasons. Because it's Old Testament. It's Old Testament. It's not New Testament. Wait a second. Even though these commands are not always in the imperative or command form in the New Testament, they're still there. They still practiced it. They still shouted in heaven. Oh, you know what? That was just the Jewish sect in heaven that that shouted to the Lord. No, it wasn't. That was all of heaven. Jews and Gentiles, cross-generational, shouting before the Lord. Okay? In triumph. Um, So I've heard people say, well, that's Old Testament. And, you know, meaning that I guess somehow it was either cultural and it's not cultural anymore Whereas when you look at the New Testament, we still see these 
things in the New Testament. So we know it's not just cultural, because Gentiles were doing this as well. Or somehow they would say, number two, it's Old Testament, not New Testament, because it was associated with the temple. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So let me ask you, do you still sacrifice animals? Well, of course we don't. That was fulfilled in Christ. Well, same with this, because it's associated with the temple. I have to say, really? So you don't sing, do you? You don't play instruments, do you? You don't pray, do you? Because this was all a part of temple worship. So if that's been fulfilled, then why do you pray? Why do you sing? Why do you, why do you, in my tradition, traditional church, we stood up to sing the hymn. Why do you stand? Because it's commanded in the Old Testament. Hmm. Maybe there's a contradiction. Maybe, and I'm going to be really firm here. I hope I'm not harsh, but I hope I'm being firm. We are catering to what we want to find. This is what I just don't... And when they're in, when I was a young man and, and I was thrust from the traditional into what I was challenged in both Old and New Testament and shouting and lifting hands and kneeling and bowing and all of this, I felt uncomfortable with that when I first saw it. And I rationalized in my mind, why do I feel uncomfortable? It must not be of the Lord. Otherwise, I would be doing it. Do you see the pride in this? You can, you can shake your heads and you can yes. say amen. Yeah, you're, you're past. I was full of pride as that young man. Um, just Now, I'm not going to do that because, you know, it's, it, 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 it's wrong because I don't feel comfortable with it. There's disorder here. I mean, shouting to the Lord, really? Um, some people believe that because it's not repeated in the New Testament that we don't need to follow. Well, obviously, we've seen it repeated in the New Testament. That somehow we feel that the Old Testament is, that Christ fulfilled the Old Testament, and therefore we don't do it. Um, and again, Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law vastly different than he, than he fulfilled the moral law. I'm not going to get into that. But he fulfilled them very differently. With the moral law, he did not abolish it. He lived it. Not just the letter, but the, the spirit of the law. And he was the perfect sacrifice as well. He didn't do away with it. But he did do away with the ceremonial law because he fulfilled the ceremonial law differently than he fulfilled the moral law. Okay, so that doesn't mean we just take the Old Testament and throw it out the window. By no means. Some people say because of something not repeated in the New Testament, we don't need to do it. I don't see the word tithe used in the New Testament, so I don't do it. Well, the principle is, is there. It was not fulfilled in Christ. And so consequently, we are still commanded to do it. And actually, I believe... Since grace goes far beyond law, so our giving should seek to go far beyond the 10%. Anyways, I am needing to wrap this time up. Um, and I, I need to... When we worship the Lord in an extravagant way, we can become self-conscious. This can become an argument for why we don't do it. I become self-conscious, and so I don't do it. But here is what David declared to his wife, Michael. And his conclusion was, therefore, that's why God chose me rather than your father. So this is pretty significant, what I'm going to say. He said, and I will continue to be undignified before these women. I will take off my kingly robe because I am now worshiping the king of heaven. And how dare I approach the king of heaven as a king? 
I am his servant. So he takes his royal robe off and he dances undignified before the Lord. No doubt he, he may well have been bare-chested, but regardless, he is going to dance undignified before the slave girls. And he is totally okay with that because he danced before the Lord and no one else. He didn't care what anyone said, including his wife. He was going to dance in an extravagant way. He was going to worship the Lord in an undignified, extravagant way. And by, that's why he danced. But he did so as unto the Lord. It wasn't disorderly. It wasn't lascivious or lewd. It was exuberant. It wasn't just cultural. Maybe the style of dance, but dancing itself is not cultural. Dancing, to my knowledge, is in every culture. Dance before the Lord. Um, and then lastly, I just want to say this. I believe that God has laid out a prescribed way of how to worship him. Do we still worship him with sacrifices? No, that was fulfilled in Christ. Dancing was not fulfilled in Christ. Lifting of hands was not fulfilled in Christ. Shouting to the Lord was not fulfilled in Christ. So we do this today when we worship. It needs to become a part of our lifestyle of worship. It doesn't mean that every time I worship the Lord, I have to kneel, I have to bow down, I have to shout, I have to lift my hands. Man, you're talking about an awesome aerobics exercise by the time you're done. But I'm not saying you have to do it every time, but that this is how, generally speaking, we worship the Lord. Okay? And we have to say enough to the cultural dictates that we cater to in our mind and this desire to feel comfortable because David, I'm sure the first time he danced before the Lord, he probably did not feel so comfortable. But he came to a place where he said, I don't care what people think. I'm going to dance before. I'm going to worship God extravagantly. So we are called to worship God in this way that engages every part and fiber of my being. It engages my mind Worship should. It engages my body. It's expressive. It engages my spirit. It engages my will. It engages my emotion. Worship is this unique way of saying to God, I love you and adore you with my entire being. That's what worship is. Worship, and I'm just going to throw these last things out to you. I'm sorry, uh, five things. Worship humbles us. Oh, no, no, no. Psalm 34, before I say, Psalm 34, 3. Psalm 34, 3 says this such a simple concept. It says, magnify the Lord with me. Magnify the Lord with me. Magnify. That means make him big. Declare just like you're blowing air into a balloon. It's like... Not that you're puffing God up. That's not what I'm saying. But but you you are your soul focus is poured into who He is and His awesomeness, and you're celebrating His abundant goodness, and you're enraptured and enthralled with the character of God and all of His ways that they are good, and you're refuting the lies of the enemy. But when you're magnifying God, you are making Him bigger and bigger in your mind. And when you do that, the consequences, all these little problems, are becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. In your life. So worship gets our eyes off of these petty problems in our life that have no eternal significance, and we are choosing to focus on all of the goodness and all of the faithfulness of our great God and Savior Jesus, and, and we're choosing to magnify Him 
and if I can coin a word, demagnify all of these lower problems in our life. Because he's our consuming passion. And so, so th- these five quick things. Worship humbles us. It says, this I am a servant and he is the master and he is my focus. He is my treasure. I am completely dependent upon the Lord. That's, that's what worship It humbles us and recognizes that I'm fully dependent on him. Number two, it reminds us of his goodness, of his, Psalm 145, reminds us of his goodness, of his compassion, that he's slow to anger, that he's rich in mercy, and he forgives all of our sins, that he is good, his love is unfailing, and he w- that his faithfulness reaches the heavens. And it, it causes us to focus along this concept of magnify, but it causes us to focus on all of the richness of who God is. Because I, I told you that the devil's goal is to, earlier, um, not in the class, but Satan's goal is to slander God and slander his people. That's, that's Revelation 13, by the way. Slander God in his name and slander his people. He, does, he slanders his people through gossip. He slanders God in his throne. By lying to us, God does not love me. God is rejecting me, focusing on my problems, and worship does just the opposite. Number three, um, it fills us with a love for Him. Um, it robs us of the opportunity to be angry towards God. Right? When I'm in worship, why would I want to be angry with this God that I am declaring my love and infatuation and, and affection for? And so, w- because that anger is like poison and worship is the antidote. Do you see? So it fills us with a love for him. Number four, it puts our problems in proper perspective. This concept of magnify that I touched on. So it puts our problems in proper perspective. And number five, we... We're created for this. What was a servant created for? What's his job? What's his, what does he do? He serves. That's it. He serves. A servant serves. We are created as worshipers for all eternity. And we worship God in more than just words and shouting and dancing. We worship in our work and all of these things, the concept of Latruo that we looked at uh, many, many weeks ago. Um, but we also worship in this very specific, defined way that we're talking about today, more proscuneo. But this is what we were created for. This is what we were created for. This is, this is part of this, this grand purpose in my life. I worship him. I need to close in prayer right now, okay? Father, this is just exciting stuff. This, this is what our hearts want to beat for what we live for this truly is what we are going to living going to be living for forever and ever and ever but god i I just pray help us to give proper place to your word and worship in our lives And and i guess father that the greatest desire in our heart is jesus please help me fall in love more and more, deeper and deeper with you. Don't let worship be cold or sterile. Don't let your word be dry or boring. It is your love letter to me. It is your heart towards your church, 
even towards the lost as you would call them to Jesus, your son for salvation and redemption. It is, it is you speaking to me and, and I want to hear what you have to say. And I want it to beat in my heart. I want to carry it with me. I want to abide in it. I want it to percolate down in my spirit to the very tips of my toes, God. I want to be saturated in your truth and in this idea of worshiping, even in an undignified way, my awesome God and Savior, Jesus. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be all honor and glory and power and dominion forever and ever.